0: If you are in the 81% of aspiring authors out there, stop aspiring and start writing with Reedsy. ReadZ allows indie authors to find and work with the best publishing professionals, from developmental editors to book cover designers to publicists. Just sign up for an author profile, browse the extensive marketplace of professionals, find the best fit for your project, and set a collaboration in motion. And with built-in contracts, protection, and mediation from ReadZ, finding qualified freelancers, editors, designers, and marketers as a self-published author just got a lot easier. Go to Readsy.com today to sign up and set your first collaboration in motion. That's R E E D S Y.com.
1: There's distinct stages, and you should expect those stages, challenges, and setbacks. I still don't really understand how I do it. It's going to be work, and you're going to suffer for your art. <laughs> That sort of story is inspirational to a lot of wannabe writers out there who feel they have a book in them, but are living a totally different life at the moment. And and the answer to that, I think, is both. You know, it's going to be exciting, you're going to have breakthroughs, and you're also going to suffer and have setbacks, and that's all part of the same journey.
0: Taking a book the whole nine yards, from an idea in your head to words on a page, from a scribble on a napkin to a listing on Amazon, that's easier said than done. But it's also easier than you'd think. I'm your host, Casimir M. Stone, and this is Readsy's Best Seller, the podcast demystifying the process of self-publishing a book for aspiring novelists everywhere, one episode at a time. This is Season 4, Chapter 2, Facts and Fiction. Fifteen years ago, an outside magazine editor had a question. Has technology, globalization, and time turned summiting Everest from heroism into tourism? So in May 1996, one of its journalists investigated, an amateur mountaineer, John Krakauer, who turned his findings into a nonfiction bestseller into thin air after witnessing firsthand how competition between guiding agencies and loosely followed safety procedures led to the deaths of eight in his party, which I suppose is one way to do research
1: one of the stories I like to tell one of the people that I think is a really cool story, uh, to share is the, um, the grandma who is the pole dancer. You know, uh, I went to blush pole dancing, uh, on the other side of town. And, uh, I took a pole dance, uh, class with the two women who co-owned it. And I, you know, I didn't, I didn't know their whole story. I just thought, oh, this is kind of quirky. It's a pole dance fitness. That's a new trend right now. And I had no idea that they used this as a way to kind of reinvent themselves and to renew themselves. And as, uh, as one of them said, you know, feel feminine and feel sexy again. And so, like, you know, I, I still talk with her and I contacted her and I was like, I'd like to put, you know, your story in my book. And she was thrilled. You know, it's why, why I got into this to begin with, to tell people stories, to tell people's interesting stories.
0: For Tim Sigalski, self-published nonfiction author of The Creative Journey, former journalist, current professor of creativity and our subject this season, research meant a lot of things. It meant finding out how to find information in the information age. It meant taking the perspectives of dozens of creativity experts, spiritual leaders, scorned arborists, and yes, pole dancing grandmas. And it meant, along the way, finding his own perspective but we'll get there. Tim, remember, was in the midst of putting together a curriculum for the creativity class he just made up. And to arrange his advice in a way that made any semblance of sense, he used the hero's journey, a classic narrative structure pulled from historical epics, Disney movies, and real life. But the definition of nonfiction is writing that accurately represents real life. A bunch of amorphous advice on creativity arranged in a recognizable structure is a start, sure, but it's not nonfiction. And as of late, it's more important than ever that we back up our ideas with
1: facts. As a journalist and as someone who's who's trained in journalism, like it's just it's just drilled into you, like accuracy is the only currency that journalist has. Because if it, people don't trust you, then Your career is done. Your profession's done. People write you off, Um, and certainly not everyone trusts journalists. We're in a in an era of that right now, Um, but you know, you, you obviously you don't try to make the problem worse. You try to make people trust you, and and you try to be trustworthy.
0: Historically speaking, journalism and nonfiction writing have been around a lot longer than fiction. In Mesopotamian cuneiform, Egyptian hieroglyphs, Chinese logographs, cave drawings, all that good stuff. Long before storytelling, the purpose of writing was to gather and convey accurate factual information, codes of laws, news, theories, in essence the transfer of knowledge across generations that separates us from every other species on earth. These days, most people aren't writing by way of abstract characters on tablets, though, unless you count emojis. Instead, you're probably tweeting or blogging or writing a scathing review on Yelp or simply texting your friends. We all have perspectives to pass on and stories to tell, and so we write nonfiction.
1: The thing I worried about the most, honestly, is telling my own story too much.
0: But when writing about real life, you also have a responsibility many other authors don't. You don't just get to tell a story. You have to get as close to the true story as you can.
1: One of my mentors, he's in the book, the guy, Paul Salsini, is his, is his name. He was one of my journals and professors. He went from nonfiction to fiction. He wrote a, tr- a trilogy um, about Italy, and uh, the characters were based on some of his ancestors and cousins and that sort of thing from Italy. And uh, he talked about in his, his, his book reading that he didn't like um, one of the quotes that one of his characters said, and he so he wanted to change it. And his mind kept telling him, you can't change that quote. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's what he said. And then he he had to tell himself, he's like, oh, wait, no, I made that up.
0: So, when it comes to talking about real life, how do you present facts, data, and other perspectives in a way that supports your own? Well, the same way you do in real life, whether on top of the world, at the dinner table, or under a pole. Research.
1: At the time, I was also in grad school getting my master's in communication. So, it kind of came from whatever I was reading at the time. Certainly, the creativity books... Uh, but also spirituality books, and a big i mean a big part of it was just in terms of whose stories I had um, you know told
0: Tim doesn't just teach multiple classes every semester; he also takes them, of course, to most other students, research mainly means skimming wikipedia
1: you know it's it shouldn't be a wikipedia entry
0: but technically, research is any creative or systematic work undertaken to increase the stock of knowledge so Basically, just a fancy way to say learning. And since nonfiction writing is basically just a fancy way to say teaching, they're a perfect fit. In academia, the emphasis there is on systematic, not creative. Academics typically spend months on research design before even beginning to write, stockpiling frameworks, methods, and procedures for gathering facts and information accurately and efficiently. Remember the adjacent possible from last week? Teaching and learning work best in a structure. So it makes sense that Tim started the systematic way, by posing a research question.
1: I had to really get in the mindset of um, and consider what does a 21-year-old need to know about creativity? What do they want to know about creativity? What do I need to teach them?
0: And then he set out on a research project to answer it.
1: The research side of things was... uh, you know, my own kind of work, legwork, but then also just a lot of reading up on creativity and reading like literal studies (laughs) and that sort (laughs) of thing.
0: For Tim, like most researchers, this began with the simple task of reading everything that anyone had ever written on the topic.
1: There's obviously a lot of quotes and things from other books. I went over notes or previous books I'd read and, and just would like take notes and I just put them again, you know, dictate them in Evernote or Google Docs.
0: Then he cited them, then he flipped to the sources they cited and read those, then he cited them, and so on and so forth, all the while searching for creativity on every conceivable database under the sun, checking out obscure dissertations from his university's library, and noting any bit of relevant information to his own project along the way. That, in a nutshell, is academic research.
1: So, I mean, that's one type of research, um, and that's one that might inform my own writing.
0: But while it's a really good way of getting a lot of perspectives on your topic, academic research isn't always front of mind for independent writers hoping to sell, publish, or at the very least, finish a nonfiction book, which is easier said than done. I've got a surprising number of friends who are totally going to write that book one day. They just got a little more research to do first. With the start of a semester looming and a creativity class he had yet to create, Tim knew that spending months on academic research design wasn't exactly in the cards. So once he had his structure, he decided to backload most of his research, writing the bulk of his arguments in the meantime and fitting new information into the framework as he came across it.
1: Just try to be like, well, where would this fit? You know, like, oh this, oh this really supports this idea of like acting like a kid or. Here's a study I found from this book that I can also translate and put into, you know, the chapter about movement. Um, The same thing might happen in fiction writing where you kind of just get in this fever pitch and you just, like, everything you see in the world around you somehow fits your framework. You just have to figure out where it goes.
0: Besides, Tim was used to researching in a rush. In fact, that's more or less how he preferred to do it.
1: The type of research you would do if you're... You know, doing research for an article, for a story, for reporting is more on like writing research, not, you know, academic research, which is may sound semantic, but they're two very different things.
0: As a journalist, Tim did his fair share of research, but it was different from his college days, past and present included. Tim didn't have time to slog through hundreds of pages about someone who he had to publish a story about the very next day. So instead, he went right to the source.
1: Like when I'm working with students, I coach them, you know, like there's different types of reporting and there's different types of research. You know, there's primary document research and you might go hole yourself up in a library, you might conduct interviews, or you might actually go do the thing yourself, um, which is called participatory journalism.
0: Participatory journalism might sound like something out of a bygone era of Lester Bing's rock and roll reviews or Hunter S. Thompson's Gonzo Adventures, Chasing the American Dream. But for Tim... Giving his own perspective first actually came pretty naturally.
1: The type of research I found the most exciting and kind of frankly the most fun is the participatory journalism.
0: By the time he got around to researching the creative journey, Tim had conducted dozens of interviews with everyone from said pole dancing grandmother to a Pixar animator, interviews in which he dove headfirst into the story he was trying to tell. In fact, as promised, he'd even used interviews to give his own advice— a literal spin.
1: So to to make that, I guess, more tangible, um, there's a Stanford study called Give Your Idea Legs that shows that people who are moving outdoors have more creative connections. They do more divergent thinking than people who just sit still. So to kind of illustrate that principle, um, the example I use is how I followed a bike messenger for a day you know this bike messenger was actually a world class messenger he got like third place in the world bike messenger championships so he left me in the dust many times he <laughs> was really fast but he showed me you know just like how much movement is a part of his life and it turned and then you know after his bike messenger days he became an art director uh, for a creative agency so i kind of show how there's this example of you know both me doing this trying it myself to see what's what's my perspective while doing it but also this person who, this is his lifestyle, this is his work, and how it produced creativity for him.
0: Tim had always found it easier to be creative in the first person. So, when working in Crunch Time on the creative journey, he did the same. He collected his favorite stories from across his career, studied them to find out what made the subjects creative, and then used that to support his own creative advice.
1: I would take someone's, you know, an interview and a story... And then figure out, kind of deconstruct it, what were the elements that made it made this person creative? Or what did they do that exhibited creative principles?
0: And then when he found the time, he'd slot in a study or two to back it all up.
1: In terms of like larger research, it's like, well, that's just one person's experience. What is the What does the research say about it? And then that's where I kind of bring in that Stanford study that shows, well, the research actually does back up. <laughs> you are creative if you do this.
0: A lot of authors actually do this, that is, backload the bulk of the research so that they can start on the actual writing part a little bit sooner. Some even do it by marking a section in their book that needs more evidence with the letters TK. Wanna know why? So they can control F it easier. There's no word in the English language in which a K comes directly after a T. And that is just a little creative problem-solving trick I picked up myself while doing research for this episode.
1: There's the old kind of journalism adage that uh, dog bites man, it's not news. Uh, Man bites dog, that's news. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, it's really kind of as simple as that. Like, what's unusual? What's different? And, you know, the people in the story, they're all doing something unusual, something different. Um, I mean, they're being creative, you know, so they're breaking the mold.
0: But in nonfiction, creativity can only get you so far, especially when that means getting creative with the facts. All journalists, in theory, uphold five integral values. Honesty, objectivity, fairness, diligence, and accountability, which coincidentally is pretty similar to the system Sarah Blakesley suggests nonfiction authors use when prioritizing research, the unfortunately titled Crap Test. For each source, you're supposed to ask how current, relevant, authoritative, accurate, and purposeful. You want the answer for all those to be very, so basically go with primary sources first and take everything else with a grain of salt. Point is, it's worth remembering that nonfiction, creative or not, is supposed to accurately, responsibly capture real life, not just your perspective on it.
1: The thing to keep in mind with that is that that's only your perspective. That's only one thing. It's really fun to go in, get your hands dirty and see if, like, this principle you're researching, you know, how you see it and how you um, what your perspective is on it. But you also have to keep in mind like that may not be universal, that just because you experience something um, may not be everyone's experience of that.
0: Writing nonfiction is an inevitability for everyone, but it's also a responsibility. And while researching for the creative journey, that's something Tim learned firsthand.
1: You know, I I wrote a story about a guy who was a he was a tree climber and like he won like national awards climbing in arborist. That's the term for it. He was like, he was winning these like, kind of like ESPN X games, um, you know, doing extreme like tree climbing and that sort of thing, uh, kind of a quirky character. But, um, because of that, he'd been written about a bunch of times. And so when I, when I wrote about him, um, he seemed a little unusually guarded. Um, mm-hmm. and, you know, well, most people like, again, especially if they haven't been written about before they maybe be there, you know, just want to talk. Um, this guy seemed a little guarded.
0: But we'll get back to that in a second. A failure to stick to the facts doesn't just mean you run the risk of getting fake news tweeted at you someday. It can actually bear real-life consequences. That's something James Frey found out rather publicly with A Million Little Pieces, an addiction tell-all exposed for being extremely creative nonfiction on live TV. Ironically, Frey had actually wanted to market the book as fiction. His publisher thought it would play better as a memoir. But when selling fiction as fact, it sometimes gets even worse than a revoked Oprah endorsement. In 2007, another former Mountaineer, Greg Mortensen, published Three Cups of Tea, the story of his humanitarian efforts to fight terrorism and build nations one school at a time that, in reality, never happened. Then he got called out for it, by none other than John Krakauer himself. And after a lawsuit, Mortensen found himself one million dollars in the hole for it. Nonfiction isn't a misnomer. Under fair use laws, it's usually fine to quote other books, studies, or people in your own, as long as you accurately cite them and don't try to pass off other stories as yours. But In nonfiction writing, there are actual legal ramifications for failing to tell the truth. And the truth looks different from each perspective. So research isn't just about finding the right evidence to back up your own. It's about taking everyone else's into account.
1: You want to try to find the sweet spot of like, you know, what's that first person perspective? What's your reporting? You know, what does your research on a personal level say? Then also like, you know, are there books that say this? Are there studies that say it? Um, You know, and of course, you don't want to just cherry pick and find like, well, this one study (laughs) (laughs) said that this is right, so that it must always be the case.
0: Fortunately, even when he caught himself focusing too much on his own perspective, Tim's natural instinct was to give others a platform for theirs.
1: And I got a call from him after it was published.
0: Remember that arborist that Tim was interviewing? This is how his story ended.
1: And he said, I read the article, my wife read the article, and then my wife told me, that's the first time I've read something and it sounded like you. Um, it was like, it, it was, I could tell it was you. Um, yeah, so basically I was true to telling his story.
0: For structure and creativity, Tim looked to fiction for inspiration. But when backing it up, he stuck to the facts. That's what research is all about. Looking at every perspective to find the truth in all of them. And in the end, by letting people tell their own stories, Tim's, turned out all the better.
1: So I go back to that story of Maureen, who is the um, pole dancing grandma. turns out she's also a cancer survivor. And that's a really important part of her story and why she does what she does and why she's covered in tattoos. And I was not anticipating that, but that became important for me to listen to her story and to listen why she does what she does and include that as, you know, like the main part of her story you know, an owner of a, uh, pole dance fitness club in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, who has this compelling and cool story to tell. And those are the type of stories I wanted to tell in this book.
0: So how do you tell someone else's story from your own perspective all without losing theirs with a couple decades of creativity under his belt? I can't say I was surprised that Tim had an answer.
1: The big thing is like, you just kind of goes back to that, um, man bites dog is find some find something that's unusual but then you pursue that with an interview of the person um in that interview it should be a substantial one if you're going to tell a story like this so like it could be a couple hours in some cases it could be over a course of a couple of days but i think it's important that even though you go into the interview kind of with an idea of like what you want to talk about and what you um what you want out of it is have an open mind of where it may take and where it may, may where it may take you, where it may go, in surprising ways. Um, so it's it's kind of an art and a science to interview people and to tell their stories. Is to know enough about them to want to tell the story, but not enough about them to see where it's going to go. You know the the main elements, what's most important about it, and how you can teach readers something with it.
0: How do you pull those things out of it? Like what's important about it? And what what the teachable moments are?
1: It, it it's first of all being okay with um you're gonna have hits and misses and you're gonna have stories that maybe don't go anywhere, but the ones that do, you you continue to kind of go deeper. You obviously listen well. You don't you don't just ask a question and move on, you know, you keep you keep going, um and you see what else is there. What have you missed? What other layers are there? uh what what depth can you can you go to to tell the story what are the motivations What's that what's at the root of it and trust that there is something there not just like okay they do this interesting thing but why why do they do it what's what's compelling them to do it what's motivating them to do it and that's where you get your interesting interesting things that then you can pull out and use to to write about
0: in the end tim still used his research to support his perspective on creativity along with a lot of other people's.
1: So, started with a story, then went to facts and figures and science, then did another story, you know, or, or more, like, background and research, and then ending with the story.
0: But it's not always that simple. And even the best intention authors sometimes trip over that thin line between fact and fiction.
1: I think it, it really kind of depends on the author. Um, in, the, in the case of, like, Into Thin Air, John Krakauer, uh, you, you know, hike up... Um, a mountain and see like what happens, and, and, and it's not always great. Your your experience may vary.
0: There's one last wrinkle to the story of Into Thin Air. Much of the book revolves around Krakauer's observations of one of the climbing guides' behavior. Basically, he says this Sherpa guy Anatoly Buchreev was a hero, but he also acted reckless in a deadly situation. Then the book was published and Krakauer became the villain, for doubting someone else's heroism while safe in his tent. Buchreve even published his own book, The Climb, sharing his perspective on the events. Into Thin Air is a rigorously, painfully researched book, and it never crosses the line into stealing, misleading, or even slander. But it's also only one guy's perspective. That might be true to nonfiction, but it's not true to real life. In reality, we all have perspectives, and we're all on our own heroic journeys every day, conducting research, writing nonfiction. Creativity exists in all our lives.
1: I think some of the most compelling stories are first-person when the author throws themselves into some research, and not, not, you know, the Steve Jobs story, with even though he's in there and you can't contractually write a book about creativity that doesn't mention Steve Jobs. Uh, but most of us are not Steve Jobs. So how are we creative if you're just the everyday person, if you're a grandma? And that's who most of us are. And, and that's, that's what I wanted. That's kind of what I set out to do as a journalist when I first started. And that's what I wanted to do with this book.
0: And by making himself someone people were happy to share with, for Tim, research meant continuing the great tradition of nonfiction. Passing information down from one generation to the next.
1: That's something I knew years ago, that I'm good at telling other people's stories, and I want to, and people want to be heard, and I can amplify voices for people. Writing this book was like a rediscovery of that purpose, that my purpose is to tell other people's stories.
0: Still, Tim had a long way to go on his own creative journey. Taking other people's perspectives on creativity is one thing, but taking their perspective on you is another altogether. Next week, we talk feedback as Tim starts trying to teach the next generation and winds up learning from them.
1: So, I mean, this book was really, it was, it was written for me, really, if, if I'm being honest. Um, but then I also have to take in the considerations of the class.
0: Brought to you by Readsy, this is bestseller. Over the course of this season, we'll follow an indie author's journey from start to finish in five chapters, exploring each step it takes to turn real life into a compelling read. Next up is Season 4, Chapter 3, Reading the Right Way. This episode was written, hosted, and produced by me, Casimir M. Stone. If you liked it, please take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Our guest this season is Tim Sigelsky. You can purchase his book, The Creative Journey, on Amazon. And you can check out his other works of nonfiction on Twitter at C-I-G-E-L-S-K-E, on Medium at T-E-E-Cycle Tim, and at a variety of other outlets, including Runner's World, The A.V. Club, and Readzy Discovery. This podcast, like so many self-published books out there, is made possible by Readsy, a marketplace that connects indie authors with the tools that traditional publishing houses would usually provide, such as editors, book cover designers, and publicists. You can learn more about Readsy on Instagram at Readsy underscore HQ, on Twitter at Readsy or online at R-E-E-D-S-Y dot com.